as uh, Christians here in America, we have it pretty good. With freedom of religion guaranteed in our Constitution, we're free to worship pretty much any way and anywhere that we want. There are hundreds of churches within driving distance, and we could probably attend any one we want without any much any problem at all. We have access to countless Bibles, to Christian books, programs, and radio stations, etc. And at least up until this point, we have not been threatened by our government for our beliefs. We probably never faced dire situations because of our faith. But what would it be like to be a Christian in a country that outlaws religion? <clears throat> I was thinking of North Korea. And so I looked them up online, and this is what I found. What it means to follow Christ in North Korea. Christians are sent to prison and labor camps where they're starved, overworked, and tortured. The government's requirement that all North Korean act as informants applies even to families as children are taught to spy on their parents from a young age. Therefore, North Korean Christians must be extremely careful in what they say, what they do, and even how they pray. When a Christian is discovered, the government punishes the entire family in order to incentivize reporting. Despite the threat of persecution and heavy social pressure, Christians in North Korea hold firmly to their faith. Christian and secular analysts estimate that about 30,000 Christians are currently suffering in prison and in labor camps. I think when we hear that, we need to really thank God for our religious freedom. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who face persecution for their faith. Today we're going to look at somebody who faced a dire situation because of his faith, his religion, and his heritage. He was a Jew and an exile in a foreign land. He had a very important job to do in a government, but his heart was back home, back home in Israel. And his name was, you know it, Nehemiah. So let's turn in our Bibles, you'll see them in front of you, to Nehemiah chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8. I don't know what page it's on, but I'm sure you'll find it. Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. 
and the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Amen. Well, the main point of our study today is this. God gives courage in dire situations to accomplish his will. And we're going to break it down simply into two parts. In verses 1 to 5, God gives courage. And in verses 6 to 8, God accomplishes his will. So let's get started. Now last week, we saw that the book of Nehemiah opened up in the month of Chislev, which is the ninth month of the Jewish calendar. And it corresponds to our November or December. And it took place in the 20th year of the king of Artaxerxes, 445 B.C., in Susa, the capital of Persia. And the scene of our story today is dire. Many Jews were living in exile in Babylon. God had sent them into exile for 70 years because of their sin. Jerusalem and Judah had been destroyed. And over 125 years later, Babylon was still full of faithful Jews, many of whom had prospered there, and many seemed fairly comfortable. They wanted to stay. But God had called them to go home. God had a plan for Israel, a plan that Jeremiah prophesied about in Jeremiah 29.10. You probably saw this on a poster. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you and will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So these exiled Jews had a choice to make. Are they going to stay in exile, or are they going to go back home? God had put it on the hearts of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah to lead these Jews back home. The first wave of Jews, or returnees, there were about 50,000 of them was led by Zerubbabel. They went home when King Cyrus issued a decree for the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple. That second wave, which was only about five to 10,000, was led by Ezra, and they went home when King Artaxerxes granted Ezra permission to go back and teach the law of Moses. We read last week that Nehemiah, Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, and some other men from Judah came back to visit Nehemiah. When he asked them about the returnees, their report was not good. The Jews were in great trouble and shame. The wall around Jerusalem was broken down, and the gates were burned with fire. Now think about it. Without a wall, the Jews of the rebuilt temple were very exposed. They were vulnerable. And these people were in grave danger from the enemies that surrounded Jerusalem. The riches of the temple, gold, silver, Jewels, precious stones, and vessels that were returned from Babylon, they were at risk of being looted by these enemies. And the Jews were sitting ducks, potentially facing extermination. God's people were a joke, a laughingstock. The situation was dire. So when 
Nehemiah heard this news, what did he do? He was so burdened about the reproach of God's people. He was so burdened by that that he sat down and wept and mourned for days. And he continued in fasting and praying day and night before the God of heaven. Now today we read that chapter 2 opens up in the month of Nisan, which is our March or April. And it's still in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, but now it's just four months later. So Nehemiah had been praying and fasting for four months. The burden on Nehemiah's heart was so great that he became almost physically ill. This was the city of his fathers. God's glory was at stake, as was the welfare of the Jewish nation. Another thing we learned last week is that Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. So over time, by God's providence, Nehemiah, who was a Jew, had risen in the ranks in the Gentile kingdom to become the king's cupbearer. It's a huge responsibility. A cupbearer was an escort to the king at meals. He tested everything the king was going to drink, putting his own life on the line because there was the threat of the king being poisoned. Thus, the king owed him his life. The king entrusted him with his own personal safety. The cupbearer would become basically a close confidant to the king and even an advisor. But if that trust were ever violated, the cupbearer could pay with his life. The king was an absolute dictator, kind of like Kim Jong-un today. dictator was a fearful thing to be in his presence. It was just an honor and a privilege to be there. And it was the cupbearers and everyone's responsibility to be happy in his presence. With one word from the king, you could be eliminated. The story of Joseph in Genesis tells of another cupbearer. When Joseph had been stuck in Pharaoh's dungeon, two members of the king's court joined him there. The chief butler, which is another phrase for cupbearer, and the chief baker. And somehow they had offended Pharaoh and were cast into prison. Well, one night, the Lord had given these two men very troubling dreams. And the next day, with the Lord's help, Joseph had interpreted those dreams. And three days later, those interpretations came to pass precisely as Joseph had said. The cupbearer was restored to his position next to the king. But the chief baker was beheaded and hanged. Again, it was a dire situation for anyone to fall under the king's wrath. And it was a dire situation for Joseph, who was innocent of all the charges that he was charged with. As a side note, though, the Lord had a plan for Joseph. He used that occasion of the interpreting of dreams later to, to honor Joseph and to uh, draw him out of the dungeon and to become second in command in the entire kingdom. He promoted Joseph to be the second most powerful per, uh, person there in the government to save Israel. So in our story today, Nehemiah was facing a dire situation. For four months, as he fasted and prayed, he had to put on a happy face 
in the presence of the king. He had to hide his true feelings, his emotions, his sadness, his concern for Jerusalem. And it says he had never been sad in his presence before. So for four months, he must have been praying for strength, for mercy, and for success. He prayed in 111, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Well, I think it's safe to assume that through prayer over all these months, the Lord had given Nehemiah courage to approach the king about this matter. Nehemiah didn't conjure up this courage in his own heart. The great, awesome, loving, faithful God to whom he prayed in chapter 1 gave him courage. So what about you? Is there ever a time you feel afraid when you just need courage? Maybe to live differently around people who are your neighbors or your family differently so that people could see the Lord in you. Maybe you're afraid that they'll think you're weird. Maybe uh, you need courage to speak to a friend or a, a family member about Jesus Christ so they would hear the gospel. Maybe you're afraid of what they think. Or maybe you're afraid they'll say no. Maybe you need courage to face a, a medical procedure that sounds really scary. Maybe you need courage to face a judge in court. Maybe you need courage to face the valley of the shadow of death. God is right there, though, to help you, especially when you're facing a dire situation. So when you're in a tough spot and you think there's no way out, pray and ask the Lord for strength, for courage. Focus your prayers and spell out to the Lord what you need. He hears, he knows, and he will give you the courage and the strength for any situation, just like he did for Nehemiah. So over these four months, while Nehemiah was praying, I think he was also forming a plan in his mind how he was going to get to Jerusalem, how long it was going to take him, and what supplies he was going to need to accomplish the tasks. And that way, when it came time to present this plan to the king, he would have the courage needed to present it, and he'd be prepared also, which he would hope would impress Artaxerxes. Lord, give me success today, he prayed. Lord, grant me mercy in the sight of this man. And God answered his prayers, and God gave him courage in the face of danger. Let's see what happens. It says, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, he had never been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. I could almost sense the accusatory tone of the king. Why is your face sad? In front of me, the king, why are you sad? Maybe he thinks something is going on with Nehemiah. Maybe he thinks... He's got some sort of a plan brewing. And that's why I think Nehemiah was afraid. I was really afraid. You can almost sense the fear that Nehemiah had. Maybe his heart is pumping. This is the time, though, that Nehemiah decided to play his cards, to show his heart, to show his love for his homeland, and hopefully to evoke sympathy from the king so that he would grant his request. So, he speaks. Let the king live forever. 
isn't just lip service, flattery. I think this is a way that he was confirming his loyalty to King Artaxerxes. There was no plot. He truly had a valid reason for his sadness of heart. And here he gave the reason for his sadness. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lives in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? This was something totally personal. It wasn't political at all. It showed the deep concern Nehemiah had in his heart for Judah. And it seemed to communicate that Nehemiah wanted to do something to fix this. And I do believe that prompted Artaxerxes to ask, well, what are you requesting? What do you want? So what does Nehemiah do next? He prays. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Oh, God, help me. Oh, God, have mercy. Here in the midst of a conversation with the king, he pauses and he prays. I think it's probably silent. But Nehemiah offers this prayer up to God. I don't know if it's ever happened to you. Was there ever a time, a precarious time, an intense conversation, an intimidating situation, when you had to act or say something or do something or give a response, and you just felt you had to pray. And so in your mind, in your heart, you offer up this prayer. God, help me. Give me the right words to say. A prayer to speak the truth. A prayer for the right words to say. A prayer for boldness or strength or courage. A prayer for favor. I think this is what 1 Thessalonians 5.17 is tell us, telling us to do. Pray without ceasing. So this is what Nehemiah did. He prayed to the God of heaven before he gave his answer to the king. Success. Lord, grant me mercy. And here I think Nehemiah put his faith and trust in God, and the Lord gave him courage. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. He made his request in a way that showed respect for the king and his authority. If it's okay with you, if I found favor in your sight, would you do something for me? Would you help me? Please, let me go home where my ancestors are buried to rebuild it. Would you do that? Would that be okay? So here we come to the second part of our text, where God accomplishes his will. As we look at verses 6 to 8, I think the first thing we see is the queen was sitting beside him. Now, that's kind of a strange statement, a random statement stuck right here. The queen was sitting beside him. But why is this important? And I think it's perhaps God is going to use the queen to help accomplish his will. This may have given Nehemiah the perfect moment of time to make his request to the king because his wife is sitting right there. The queen was there. She must have had some sort of influence over the king influence that could cause the king to give favor to Nehemiah. But we ask, why would the queen be sympathetic to Nehemiah? So think about this. We all know Esther. Esther was a Jew. She was queen of the previous king, Ahasuerus, if I can say that, Ahasuerus. And he was Artaxerxes' father. So Esther was Artaxerxes' stepmom. 
So I would think that Esther had previously influenced Artaxerxes and his wife, the queen, to look favorably upon the Jews. So here's the moment. Artaxerxes is sitting there with his wife, his queen. Okay? And if this were the case, it really shows the providence of God, how God orchestrated all these people at this specific time so that Nehemiah's request would be granted and the will of God would be accomplished. So Artaxerxes asked him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? And I think this would seem to indicate that the king was really considering his request, considering granting it. He didn't shoot it down right away, and he didn't shoot Nehemiah. He wanted to know, well, how long are you going to be gone? And I think that would be a natural thing for the king to want to know. After all, Nehemiah was his cupbearer. He was asking for a leave of absence from his job. When are you coming back? So Nehemiah told the king how much time that the journey and the rebuilding would take. And the king accepted Nehemiah's answer. And the text tells us that he was pleased to send him. It's a good thing. Well, so far, things are going really well in this conversation. Well, not only did Nehemiah figure out how long it would take, he had made other plans as well. He figured out that there would probably be serious opposition to what he was doing. He believed that someone would try to harm him as he crossed through this hostile territory on this dangerous trek back to Jerusalem. And so he asked the king for letters to the governors along the way, commanding that those governors would provide him safe passage. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. Good thinking. And finally, Nehemiah planned exactly what materials he was going to need to rebuild the wall, the city, and his own house. And so he asked the king to give him a letter to the manager of the king's forest, a letter that would provide him all the lumber he needed for these projects. And let a letter be given to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. In other words, let's do this. Sound like Home Depot? <laughs> so it appears that Nehemiah had been praying and planning for four months. He planned what he needed, how long it would take, and what to do. He anticipated what the, what the king would want to hear, and he knew who he was talking to. And so God used Nehemiah's plan to accomplish his will. So what happens next? In verse 8, And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The good hand of God was also upon Artaxerxes. The Lord caused Artaxerxes to have favor upon Nehemiah. He moved his heart to grant Nehemiah mercy, strength, and everything that he asked for. As Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Most of you probably know I'm a salesman. 
I sell various types of industrial products, uh, products that companies use to run their business. And I do pray, God help me, God bless me. Okay? God give me success. But I also have to work to be prepared to make my sales. I have to study up on what I want to present to my customers. I have to learn what this product is going to do for them, why it's better than my competitor's product, and how it's going to fix their problems. And so I really try to prepare before I go into an account, before I call in a plant, just so that I know what I'm talking about. Okay? It's not going to be enough for me just to pray before I go in. Okay, God, give me a sale. i got to be prepared. I have to do my due diligence to make that happen. And the Lord blesses that due diligence. He blesses my planning. And knowing that, knowing that if I work and plan and prepare, that God will bless that, that gives me great confidence to turn this whole thing over to the Lord. So that if I get the sale, he gets the glory because he blessed it. If I don't get the sale, well, God had other plans. Okay, So really, God uses our plan. So, for instance... If you're going to go on a job interview, okay, obviously you're going to pray and ask that the Lord would give you, uh, would bless you and give you favor. But you want to be prepared when you go into this interview. You want to think about what you're going to say. You want to think about the questions that the interviewer is going to ask you. And you want to plan good answers for those questions. And be confident that the Lord is going to be there to help you. And be ready. Okay, be prepared. So let's look at one more thing concerning how God works to accomplish his will. So up until this point, we've seen that it's God's will that the exiled Jews would return to Jerusalem. It's God's will that the temple, the walls, and the city would be rebuilt. Why was this so important? As Gabriel explained in Daniel 9.25, he said to Daniel, Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So Gabriel prophesied that Messiah would appear 483 years after this decree. So to fulfill prophecy, Jerusalem had to be rebuilt. And lo and behold, Jesus fulfilled this prophecy precisely as he rode into Jerusalem on a colt on 9 Nisan A.D. 30. 483 years later after this decree. Jesus the Messiah Jesus Christ had a specific appointment in time. He had an appointment to put on flesh in Bethlehem. He had an appointment to ride into Jerusalem. He had an appointment to lay down his body on the cross. He had an appointment to breathe his very last breath. He had an appointment to rise from the dead. This was the perfect will of God. It's summed up really well. Acts 2, 22 to 23 says this. 
Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This was the ultimate plan of God, the salvation of the world. So we've been examining Nehemiah 2, that God gives courage in the midst of dire situations, and that God accomplishes his perfect will even in these dire circumstances. Well, consider then the life of Jesus. Has anyone in history ever experienced greater danger greater pain, greater sorrow, or greater shame than Jesus? Has anyone in history ever been more perfect, more holy, more wonderful, more sinless, and yet faced more dire situations than Jesus? Jesus the Messiah, perfect God, perfect man, beaten, tortured, scourged, and murdered on a cross at the hands of sinful men. This was the perfect will of God. God himself had orchestrated all of history to accomplish his perfect will in Jesus Christ. And his will was this, that Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, would pay the penalty for the sins of the world and redeem from sin and death everyone God the Father gave his son courage in the midst of dire situations. God the Father gave his son courage to drink the cup of his wrath. And Jesus Christ drank it all to the dregs. Christ did it in perfect obedience to the Father, for the love of the Father, for the glory of the Father, and for the love of man. And Jesus did all of this All of this is his plan. But God is not done. He is still unfolding more and more of his plan each and every day in the lives of his children. As we live our lives in faith, let us allow God to lead us into his will. Let's pray and plan to serve him in ways that will accomplish his will in our lives. Let us share his love with other people telling them of the love of Christ and the blood of Jesus that washes away all sin. As Jesus builds his church, let us allow him to work in us that we would join him in his work. And above all, let everything we do be for his glory and honor. Though we face trials and tribulations, though we face dire situations, God is always with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. If we can truly sing in our hearts, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Let's pray. 
Lord, we are so unworthy. Lord, we are sinners, hopelessly lost, hopeless without you. But you came. You came and lived a perfect life in this world to show us obedience to the Father, to show us perfection to the law. And you came to lay down your life to pay the penalty for our sin, a debt which we could never pay. You did on the cross with your blood. So Jesus, when we think of your plan from eternity past, your plan to do this, to accomplish this will, through the centuries and the millennia, through the people, all recorded in the Bible, it just blows our mind. It's overwhelming to think of the love that you have for us to save poor, wretched sinners like us. You did it for your glory and honor, that we will proclaim your name to this world, and Lord, that one day we will be gathered together in your presence living in you in heaven. Lord, we'll see the new wall, the open gates, the pearly gates, the jewels, the glorious kingdom. We will be together with you and the Father forever and ever and ever because of what you did. How can we say thank you?